Just hoping that everything works out fine. Today we're going to go to Romans chapter 5. I'm excited. It's going to be good. Because we're going to do, the next four weeks are going to be Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. (laughs) (laughs) Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. See, nowadays I put the text of the, of the stuff in with my notes so that I don't have to go back and forth, but when I did these notes, I had, was not doing that yet, so that's kind of annoying. Anyway, let's pray, and then we can jump in. Father God, I thank you. Your peace and your presence are so wonderful. Thank you that you are with me even when I don't recognize it. I thank you that you are near to us at all times, that you would never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you that you are always good. I thank you that you're always present and at work. I thank you that you, Father, are just like Jesus. I thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to show us who you are. Holy Spirit, my request this morning is that you would do what Jesus said you would do. You would reveal him to us. Lord, as we dive into some pretty deep theological waters today, it is not my intention that anyone learn a uh, systematic theology. It's not my intention that anyone come away with perfect knowledge of exactly how you operate and who you are. Lord, my desire is that each person in this room, especially me, would have an encounter with the living God. Be good. I'm not going to be happy with you. What's that? I'm talking to my computer. I'm sorry. It decided to quit at some point. (laughs) (laughs) That's what God's saying to you all. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. Okay. So I'm going to have to keep uh, my eye on that. All right. uh, Romans chapter 5. Let's read. Therefore, I know that eventually we're gonna we may have to go back to chapter four and find out what the therefore is therefore, but let's just keep moving. Having been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Okay, let's back up to Romans 4 for a moment so we can see what the therefore is therefore. Context is king, my friends. Do not attempt to read the scriptures piecemeal. It's just a bad idea. You know, you heard about the guy that just is like, God, tell me what to do. And he opened his Bible and put his finger down and it said, Judas hung himself and his entrails spilled in the potter's field. And then he was like, whoa. And then he closed the Bible and then he opened it up again and put his finger down and said, go now and do likewise. No. <laughs> right? Okay. That's a bad idea. That's not how we read the Bible. Okay. <laughs> the, the Bible, we, should, we need to read the Bible in big chunks. In fact, I would recommend that you regularly make a habit of reading entire books of the Bible at once. It's not easy to do, um, but it is, it's really good. It's like, uh, it's a lot of fun to, to read. Like, I'd recently read the whole book of Romans, just all the way through, which took me a while, it took me probably an hour and a half. Um, but man, you catch stuff, especially stuff that's being repeated multiple times, that you wouldn't have caught if you read this chapter today and chapter 11, you know, 10 weeks later, you wouldn't necessarily remember, hey, this is exactly how Paul was talking in chapter 2, right? Okay, so, like, you, know, you only catch that kind of stuff when you read the whole book. And remember that this is a letter. And how often have you received a letter that you just read one chapter at a time? Like one, no, many of you have probably never received letters. When my, when my wife and I... Uh, my wife and I went through Master's Commission. We started dating. Uh, at Master's Commission was over at noon. We started dating at 12.01. <laughs> not kidding. We were on our way to a Benny Hinn oh rally. I'm, not, I'm also not kidding. Uh, <laughs> it was really fun. But anyway, um, and uh, we had three days together, and then she... Moved to the Philippines for 10 weeks. Oh. Yes. <laughs> All right. Circumcision is... No, I don't have, a, don't have a cucumber in here. That's oh, oh, no. <laughs> you just cut away. I'm just not sure you're going to make a metaphor with the charger. No, I'm just plugging my computer in. Okay. <laughs> All right. No. Circumcision is a, uh, it is a practice that uh, existed before Abraham, but it's something that God asked Abraham to do as a sign of the covenant with Israel. Um, it's where the, a, a part of Abraham's uh, penis was cut away. And, and that's something that they still do. Uh, especially in America. I'm not entirely sure why it's as popular in the United States as it is, um, except it is. 
Uh, they didn't even ask us if we wanted to circumcise our sons. They just said, okay, let's schedule his circumcision. That was just something they did, just as a matter of course. I don't really get that. It's, it's kind of expected. You kind of have to ask, like, no, I don't really want him circumcised. I didn't do that because it's fine. I mean, it's you know, there's supposed to be benefits or whatever to it. But, um, and those are debatable. But the the point back then was to make them physically different from the rest of the tribes that surrounded them. It was a sign of devotion to God, and it was it was an outward physical sign of devotion to God. And they did that to their sons when they were eight days old. Have you ever heard of a bris? Have you ever heard of a bris? You people need some Jewish, like, you need a Jew, you guys need to go hang out with, uh, what's her name? No, I think I said Dave. No, what's her name? The, the lady that does the Jewish ministry here. Oh, I know her well. Her She's just... No. Dang it. That's what happens. Anyway, there's a Jewish ministry here at this church. It might be good for you to go spend time with them. But anyway, um, the bris is the party where everybody comes together, and in the middle of the party, the rabbi... Oh, actually, it's called a moil. It's a specific kind of rabbi called a moil. Uh, who will circumcise the child with the entire family looking on. It's really fascinating. What a fun party trip. Eight days old. Eight days old. No, 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 no. They're eight days old. They, they, um, which is also, Jesus' bris was when he went to the temple and he was given to the Lord at eight days of age. And he was, that's when he met... Simon and, or, uh, Simeon and, and Anna, you know, remember, and they, they prophesy over him early in life. Do any of you read the Bible? Come on, folks. Okay. Um, all right. So all of chapter four is about this issue that Abraham was credited, the righteousness was credited to him because of his faith in God and not because of his adherence to the Jewish law, okay? That's the whole point of chapter 4. There's a lot of, there's a lot in there, but we're not going to take all this time. And he reads all this evidence in there that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, which is from the book uh, of Genesis, by the way. And and he says, okay, and, and that happened because of his faith in God. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed those promises, and therefore he was considered righteous by God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, okay? So now he's saying that is, that is the justification that we also receive as followers of Jesus Christ now. The same kind of righteousness that Abraham received way back then is available to us now, that it has nothing to do with our adherence to the law, but with our trust in God. Is everybody with me? Okay? Therefore, that's what the therefore is there for. Having been justified by faith. Okay, what does justified mean? Who was in Bible quiz? What's justified mean? Oh. Come on, it was a 20-point question. What does justified mean? Cheater. 
I did, but I wanted you to come up with it out of your own personal stores of information. All right, this is the way that I've always remembered it. Okay, you have been justified by, uh, by God through faith, and it is now just as if I never sinned. Justified just as if. Get it? Are you with me? Just as if I never sinned. That's what justified means. Now, the reality is to be justified means that it doesn't, they don't go back and erase your performing behavior, but they go back and show you as righteous in it, which is a really fascinating difference. Okay? So Jesus justified you. In other words, you are, you're not a sinner any, anymore. That's really good news, isn't it? I'm not a sinner anymore. And that happens by our faith in God. Okay? Is everybody with me? This is yes. This is no. All right. Having been justified by faith, it is faith in Jesus' work. Now, let's talk a little bit about faith. Somebody tell me about faith. That's good. Believing something you may not be able to say, see, okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. See, what we miss, and you know, all of these definitions have had, you know, have been in, in the general vicinity of the truth. When I think of faith, okay, what, I, what, what we need to think about is trust. That's what we need to think about. It's trust. I have faith in God, okay? My faith in God is what justifies me. I trust God. I believe that God, I believe in who God is and what Jesus did for me. My trust is in him. Okay, just like when you get in your car, you trust that it's going to start. Just like when I sit down in a chair, I trust it's not going to break underneath me. Okay? <laughs> but how many of you had chairs break underneath you? It's like, I had, it's happened to me. It happened to me at a 4th of July party that I was at, and I sat down in a chair, and all of a sudden it's just like, and I was just like, I'm never eating again. That was that was that was my that was my. <laughs> but you sit down without thinking. Ooh, is this chair gonna? Right? Don't you? I mean, you don't you don't ask yourself the question. You just sit, right? You put your full weight down on it. That's trust. That's faith. And when our faith is in God. Okay, then justification comes to us. Now this thing, this reality of faith is fascinating. And Jesus talks more about it than really anybody else. Jesus is always looking for people who do believe beyond what they can see. It's like, well, yeah, I know this looks that way, but I'm, I trust God more than I trust my own senses. I trust God more than I trust what I can understand about the world. I trust God more than the quote-unquote facts of this matter, because I trust God. 
Are y'all with me right now? Mm-hmm. My hope and my trust is in God, period. So that when I'm laying on a hospital bed and my life is ebbing away and they're saying, you know, you're, he could go at any minute, okay? Where is my trust at? My trust is not in these doctors who can't do anything for me, apparently. My trust is in God, and whether he heals me or, or not, my trust is in him, and I am, I am trusting the fact that he is going to have me whether I die or live. Who else can you trust in that moment? No one. And that's where we're at. Okay? When it says... By grace through faith. Okay, so therefore, having been justified, okay, just as if I never sinned, by faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's really good news. So my trust is in Jesus. Okay, I trust that everything he taught was real and true and right. Okay. And because my trust is in him, I have peace with God. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but it really is, because my entire life I have been living against God. My Most of my actions and even the way that I think and feel about things has been a gigantic middle finger up at God. It's real. Okay? And now here I am, and I'm saying I'm trusting in Jesus that all of this stuff that I've done that should make God reject me is all taken care of. I'm also trusting in Jesus that he has shown me the true nature of his father, which is loving and forgiving and good and self-sacrificing. See, Jesus said it like this. He said, no man has ever seen God. Right? I mean, that's what Jesus talked about. No, no, no. I'm the only one who's ever seen God, and I'm telling you what he's like. Well, I have to trust him, because I haven't seen God. Have you? Jesus is saying, I come from heaven, I come from (laughs) God, and here I am, and I'm telling you this is what God is like, and I have to trust him now. I don't have a choice. Are you all with me right now? You're awfully quiet. Okay. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also, also, that means not only do we have peace with God, remember this is that picture that I gave to you before about we had this debt, which put us in the negative, and then uh, mercy brought us to zero, but grace takes us into the positive. Are you with me? This is one of the verses that I am basing this on, because he says, through whom also, so peace with God would be zero. Like, I owe God nothing, we're good. Right? But he's saying, oh, but on top of that, but wait, there's more. Right? I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. Through whom, Jesus, we also have obtained our introduction by faith. Okay, we're still trusting God. Into this grace in which we now stand. So I'm not standing at zero. I'm standing in better than zero. I'm standing in grace, which goes beyond just peace with God. 
I'm really happy to have peace with God. I don't deserve peace with God. So I'm really happy to have peace with God. But that's not where I'm staying. I am in his grace, which the word grace means unmerited favor, which means not only does God not hate me, but God actually likes me. Not only is God not mad at me, but God feels favorably toward me. His attitude toward me is is filled with favor. He's like, I like that guy. And that's where I'm standing. I am standing in the place of favor with God. That's, oh, come on. Somebody get excited about this, right? If I had favor with President Trump, okay, think of all I could get away with if I had favor with President Trump. No, seriously, like, he can pardon people. Did you know this? Like, he has pardoning power. A lot of people have been wondering if he's going to pardon himself. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Technically, yes. Can, can he get away with doing <laughs> I don't know. It would probably go to the Supreme Court after that. But technically, yes, he could pardon himself, <laughs> which is kind of crazy, but anyway. <laughs> it kind of sounds like something he might do. <laughs> you know what? I pardoned That's myself. I there. Now build the wall. Anyway, <laughs> he could, so I could do, like, really a lot of wrong things, and he could just say, I pardon Josh for anything he's done. Done. Piece of cake. Wiped clean. I'm a happy man, right? That's, that's, I know, that's kind of scary, isn't it? It's like a brother we're hot now. <laughs> but that's, mm-hmm. okay, so favor with the king of the universe is probably a pretty great thing, wouldn't you say? You know, have you ever, you know, I have friends in high places. I've got friends in really high places. And so do you. Through, because I'm trusting Jesus, I have favor in really high places. That's really good. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? You guys are so unresponsive today. It's because of the microphone, isn't it? You're like, they can hear me. I don't want them to hear me. What does it mean when when he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God? Are you going to answer me? (laughs) Well, no, okay, okay, I want you to think of it. I want you to think of him talking about, here's what's happening. We have been justified past tense. Grace in which we now stand, present tense. And we hope in the glory of God, future tense. Are you with me? So not only are my past sins forgiven, not only am I currently standing in a place where I have favor with God, yippee-dee-doo, okay? But I'm hoping in the glory of God in the future. My future is the glory of God. That's my future. That's where I'm headed. That's my inheritance. This is the glory of God. So Jesus has us covered, past, present, future. This is really great stuff. And it's because we trust him that everything's taken care of. All right? And not only only this, not only this, but wait, there's even more. But we also exult in our tribulations. Oh, now, what are tribulations? 
difficulties, bad things, tough stuff, tribulations. You're exulting in your tough stuff? You're exulting in your hard times? How many of you exult in hard times? Today sucks. Yay! Maybe you should. Because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. What's perseverance? I got emotions for it. I got emotions for it. What's perseverance? <laughs> Yes, exactly. So you could have said that. <laughs> Moving forward, it's an I'm not going to quit attitude. That's what perseverance is. I am not, I will not lay down. I will not quit. I will not stop. It's, that's perseverance. Tribulations teach us perseverance. So when we're walking through tough times, we begin to learn that we can't quit. Right? I mean, that's what you learn. You can't quit. You got to keep walking. Even though stuff, either you're going to have a hard day, you got to keep moving on. You can't just lay down and curl up into a ball and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, you know, the, there's, there's this place in the delivery of a baby that's called transition. Okay? Now, my wife only went through labor one time, and, and then my son crushed his umbilical cord with his ginormous melon. And, <laughs> and it's just truth. And... And the doctor is like, the doctor is like, we're going to have to take him out another way. Okay, that's not going to work. All right? <laughs> that was me. And the doctor was like, we're going to do a C-section. Okay, so, and then after that, we did, we did C-sections because they were like, look at dad's head. None of these kids are going to come out easy. Okay? And that's, so, that's, so, so I never got to experience this moment in the birth of any of my children. But, but I have heard that at the place of transition, which is where you go from the body preparing itself to deliver the child to where the child's actually moving out of the body, okay? That's, that's what transition is. It goes, it's where, it's where the, the woman's body is done getting the baby into position, done making itself ready, and now it's time to push, is transition. And it's usually around the time of transition that women say, I can't do this. I can't do it anymore. I think, you know, you've seen it in the movies, right? Like, I just, we'll do it later. I can't do it right now. I'm too tired. Right? Okay, exactly. And, but it's a real thing. Like, a lot of women do that. A lot of women are like, I'm just too tired. I can't do it. And they're like, sorry, honey. We can't, like, push it back up there and say, rain check. You know, that doesn't happen. So, at this point, there's, it's not stoppable, okay? Um, you got to keep going. All right. And that's this, that's the picture of perseverance. Like we got to keep moving forward, but perseverance by itself, per, but perseverance isn't an end into itself either. Perseverance brings proven character. Okay. You can always tell when somebody hasn't been through anything hard. You can, cause they're, they just, you know, there's no humility to them at all. You can always tell when somebody hasn't been through the crushing. Okay. And I actually often pray for people, Lord, it's time for the crushing. Because a lot of times that arrogance uh, 
is is actually an obstacle to their destiny. And we have to get to the place where we've been crushed a bit before, you know, we've been taken down a few pegs before we can make it through the, uh, the eye of the needle and into the destiny that God has for us. The problem is that some people recognize when crushing is coming and submit, and some people don't recognize, and they fight, or they run away, and they're just prolonging their own suffering. Now, the way God is, He's really kind. He will, he will start you into a, a, a season of suffering, a season of tribulation. He will... He will begin it for you, and then you're like, no, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And he'll let you take a breather for a couple months or a year. But then you're going to come back around the mountain again, and you're going to be at the same trial again, and it's going to happen again. And wise people are going to come around you and say, we're here. Go through it. Yes, it's going to hurt. But walk through. You know, as a pastor, I have to... I have to walk with people a lot of times through some of the hardest times of their life, whether it be the death of someone that they love or really difficult sickness or disappointment in their job or in their marriage. or And a lot of people will really fight hard not to grieve. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't hug me. I'm fine. And in every family, when when there's a death in a family, in every family there's going to be at least one person who thinks they have to be the strong one for everyone else and will refuse to grieve. But here's the thing you need to understand. Grief is born of a healthy soul. Grief is necessary. It is the process that a healthy soul goes through to let someone go. You need it. And almost every time that I'm involved with a family that's lost somebody, I have to, well, I have to get one of the family members off to the side and say, I see you being strong for them. I appreciate it. But you need to let yourself feel this. And about 75% of the time, they ignore me completely. And then six, eight, ten, twelve months later, they crash and burn because they have grief that's just begging to get out. It's just that they need to go through the process of letting this person go and they haven't done it yet. And eventually their body just doesn't let them continue. It's reality. Grief is not easy, it's not fun, it's not, even when you submit to it, it sucks. But fighting it is only going to make it worse. And that's grief of all size and description. Whether it's gigantic grief like when you lose someone you love, or whether it's little grief like when some reality in your life has changed and you didn't want it to.
When it comes, don't resist it. Okay? Because tribulation is a gift. Now, I'm not going to say that God causes tribulation because I don't believe that. I really don't. I believe God is good and He doesn't cause tribulation. But He will use it. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I exult in my tribulation. Why? Because it does, now it has purpose. Before I had peace with God and was standing in grace and had the hope of glory, before that, pain had no purpose. It was just pain upon pain upon pain. But now that I know the truth about who God is and what God is doing in my life, and, and I am walking in partnership with God, I know that even this, even this worst experience of my life, God is going to use. He's going to use to teach me perseverance, which is going to give me proven character. And proven character is going to result in hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within my heart through the Holy Spirit who has given to me. You see, tribulation, the end result of tribulation that's gone through with humility and faith is hope. It might start in doubt and anger and fear. But when we submit to it saying, I trust you, God, I trust you, God, I trust you, God, because Jesus, because I trust Jesus, I know I have peace with God and because, and, and, not only that, but I'm standing in his favor. And this isn't a punishment from you, God. This is something you're going to use for my better. And I'm going to go through this trusting you all the way. And I'm going to exult in my truth. In fact, I'm not, I'm not just going to hate my, I'm not just going to say it's going to be okay, but I hate this. And you're allowed to say that. But not only that, I'm going to go beyond that and say, I trust that on the other side of this is something so worth it. That I will look back on this moment and say, I'm so glad I went through it. I wouldn't change a thing. Because I know the love of God. The love of God has been made known to me by the Holy Spirit who's been poured into my heart. I know Him. And I know that God loves me and I know that today stinks, but He's here. And I'm still in his favor and I still have the hope of his glory and he still loves me even when I don't understand and I'm going to stay right here. You guys know that song? Uh, it's Brian and Katie Torwalt. It's called I Breathe You In. The bridge of that says, when I don't understand, I will choose you. It just says that over and over again. When I don't understand... I will choose you. When I don't understand, I will choose you, God. And it goes back to, because you are good. It's living in that place where over and over again, we don't allow our circumstances to tell us who God is. But we trust that he is who Jesus showed to us. And that he's going to take this and do something beautiful with it.
And I know about the love of God because in verse because verse six, while I was still helpless, at just the right time, Christ the Messiah died for the ungodly. That's me. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. <laughs> Could I put a lie to death today? And I've probably said this to you before, but you need to hear it again and again and again because the reality is most of your life you've been probably, I hope this isn't true, but my guess is that most of your life you've been lied to about how God reacts to sin. Most of my life, I was told that when God sees sin, he says, I cannot look upon that. He turns his face away from it. So much to the point that they told me that when Jesus had the sin of the world upon him on the cross, that God turned his face away from him. Which is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had forsaken him. Let me say this to you right now. That is a lie that's not biblical, that's not real, and I can prove it to you. God does not look away from sin. God runs toward it. God's response when he sees sin attacking one of his children is to respond with rescue, salvation, and the fury of his own heart against the sin which is destroying you. God doesn't turn his eyes away from sin. I shall not look at thee. No, that is not who our God is. What did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? What happened? What was the very next thing that happened? Before that. He came looking for them. Now, do you think God didn't know? Where are you, Adam? We know God knew where he was, and we know God already knew what happened. Now, if God was the kind of God that could not look upon sin, would he have even showed up in the garden that day? Not only did God know what had happened, but he had known it was going to happen before it did. And he was ready with the answer already, and then he did clothe them. He didn't have to, well, you know, now that you've sinned, I'm going to have to think about how I feel about you. Immediately. Now think about this. Just give me a moment. Think about this. Had God seen them naked before? <laughs> yeah. Had they seen each other naked before? Yeah. In fact, that's all they had known. So has the reality of their situation changed, like, outwardly at all? No. But they felt shame, so God clothed them. Did he need to? Was he unaware of what their naked bodies looked like? You know, if it had been me, I would have been nonsense. I've seen you naked since the day I created you. <laughs> Besides, I can look through, uh, you know, whatever. But because they felt shame, he gave them clothes so they didn't have to feel ashamed anymore. Does that sound like a God 
who is just like, ugh, I can't be with you. Over and over again, over and over and over again in the scripture, we see the way God reacts to sin. He comes. Let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. God comes and he offers them a way out. Now repentance is going to have to happen. They're going to have to realize what they did. They're going to have to say, you're right, I did something stupid and I'm not going to do it anymore. They can't stand in rebellion and say, screw you, God, I did it and I liked it. You know, like that's, that, that's, by the way, even when we do that, God still comes after us. But our God is a God who pursues us even in our brokenness and even in our sin. Great question. Open up your Bible to Psalm chapter 22. It better be the right one. I hope that's right. Is it 22? Read it. What does it say? Sound familiar? Yeah. Now tell me, if you keep reading, you will read a very accurate description of Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, stunningly accurate. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are my words... Uh, are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. You they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of man and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. Hmm. They, they separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Doesn't that sound like the things that people said to Jesus? Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast, upon you I, will cast, I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They've opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Ever seen the Passion of the Christ? When they dislocate his arm? Are you ready? Uh, where are we? 13. They open wide their mouth at me. Okay. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Remember? I thirst. Okay? And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers encompass me. They pierce my hands and my feet. What? I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
Now, why would Jesus say that from the cross? He was reminding everyone. You knew this was going to happen. He was pointing back at this prophecy. But to prove even further, this is the best part. I got to keep going. I got to skip a little bit. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Wait. Nor has he hidden his face from him. Any preacher that has ever told you that God turned his face from Jesus has apparently never read Psalm 22. It's right there. He has not, nor has he hidden his face from him. Is that good or what? That is crazy. And once again, but see, here's the thing. Part of this is the pro- pro- part of the problem is the way we look at the cross. Part of the cross was a demonstration of the love of God. God demonstrates his own love. While you were still a sinner, God came to save you. Are you all with me right now? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay. We've been saved from whatever wrath we thought was coming to us. We have been saved from it. We've been reconciled with God. and Everything's good. It wasn't just the death of Jesus that forgave us our sins. It was the resurrection of Jesus that gave us new life. And the promises that we will have life forever. Remember when I asked you earlier this year, who told you that the human soul was immortal? <laughs> this is one of those verses that I would point to that would say to us, maybe it's not. Okay? Maybe life comes from the resurrection of Jesus. And then if we're not connected with and included in the resurrection of Jesus, our life will just simply end. But that's a little bit of heresy. I just had to throw that out for you. Okay. confused because like, just like, decided to start actually like trying to fully read my Bible. So I was like, okay, we're just going to have to do this. And like, I'm going to study Bibles like, it was talking about, because I was in Genesis, it was talking about, like, basically how, how we were meant to, like, live forever. Right. So. But where is that in Genesis? That's the question. In fact, God declares in Genesis chapter 6 
My spirit will not wrestle with man forever, for man is mortal. His years will be 120. So, yeah, they were going off the base of like it was until <laughs> God decided that they couldn't live that long because they were evil. Right. But see, that may, then, why did God separate us from the tree of life? So we weren't internally stuck in our sin. Right. Well, that's my interpretation of it. But see, somebody that thinks that we were immortal anyway, we were supposed to live forever anyway, then who cares whether you can eat from the tree of life or not? If we didn't even need the tree of life to live forever, then why do we care that we can't get to it? Does that make sense? Like, so there has to be something about the tree of life that had like a purpose or a point. Because we're specifically barred from Eden because God doesn't want us to get to the tree of life. So you're saying like they were they only immortal because of the tree of life is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. I just, and I don't know that they were immortal. I just think that maybe the tree of life somehow kept them alive and healthy and whatever. It sustained them in some way. But that's still just a guess. So we don't actually know if like no. Say, okay. Say, say you know, Eve wasn't like tricked. And yeah. She, we don't actually know they they live forever. No, we don't know that. Now they would have had access to the tree of life, so Probably. that makes me think they would have. But it's an assumption. It is an assumption. And all of that, like, if they say humans were meant to be immortal, well, where does it say that? Are they deriving that from the fact that God says that we are in the image of God? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean immortality. There are ideas we bring to the Bible, and there's ideas we get from the Bible, and we have to pay attention to which are which. And there is nowhere in the Bible that says that man is eternal. There's, in fact, it says the opposite over and over and over again. The question is, does that mean that our souls are immortal or not? And the truth is the Bible's pretty quiet on that subject. just doesn't even mention it. doesn't even... By the way, you have an immortal soul. Like, that doesn't happen. The only place that we get close to it is when, God, is when in Ecclesiastes, the teacher says that he has put eternity in our hearts. But what the heck does that mean? <clears throat> doesn't our like, belief in heaven and hell imply that our souls are immortal? Well, I think uh, not necessarily, though. But people believe lots of things. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is just because heaven and hell exist doesn't mean that the people that live in those two places exist forever. You know, hell, the Bible talks about, in fact, just about every time the Bible refers to hell as eternal, it's talking about hell being eternal. It's not talking about your stay in hell being eternal, necessarily. It may imply that your stay in hell is eternal, but it doesn't necessarily say that. Okay, so we just, we can't build an, an argument for eternal conscious torment on that idea. We have to, if we're going to find eternal conscious torment in the Bible, and it does seem to be there, but we're going to have to find other verses to do it with. But what about the flip side of heaven? Same thing with heaven. The Apostle Paul talks about those that have been saved are enjoying the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. But our eternal life in heaven comes from our connection with Jesus or possibly from the tree of life, which in the book of Revelation is apparently in the heavenly city. Doesn't that imply that we're in heaven forever then? Possibly. It's an implication, just like the eternity of hell is an implication. We're just guessing. 
The point is, we trust God. So whatever it is, we're happy. Oh, yes, yes. But when does the resurrection take place? Yeah. Isn't that the millennial rule? The, the, the resurrection from the dead, well, it depends on how you interpret the... Oh, no. Oh, my God. Who did it? Okay. <laughs> All right. When you're reading end times passages, it's obvious that there will be a resurrection. We will have a physical bodily resurrection. That's going to happen. If we are trusting in Christ, we will be given resurrection. That's what the Apostle Paul is even talking about right here. Okay? That we will we will rise from the dead. What the Bible doesn't talk very much about is what happens in between our death and resurrection. It's just kind of an empty, like the Bible just doesn't talk about it very much because the hope that the church was giving to people was that they wouldn't stay dead, that they would rise from the dead. And we didn't, they didn't think very much about what was going to happen in between because it didn't really matter to them. It was just like, wait, I'm not going to stay dead though, right? No, you're not. Okay, good. That's all I care about. They weren't worried about where their ghostly selves was going to go. Okay, And the reason they weren't is because they were actual Christians and not Gnostics. Now, Gnostics say that everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad, and so the separation from the physical body is a good thing rather than a bad thing. Because my spiritual self is actually holy and my physical self is unholy. And so death is great. And when I leave this body, I'm going to go to heaven and it's going to be great and I'm going to be excited because I'm going to be free from the perils of the flesh. Have you ever heard anything like that? That is a Gnostic view. That is not a Hebrew view. That's not a New Testament view. A New Testament view says... The real promise of God lies in the resurrection from the dead, which will come later on. Now, the way the Assemblies of God teaches it is this, that Jesus will raise Christians from the dead at the rapture, which will take place immediately prior, immediately be right about it. And thankfully I am. So let's just keep going. <laughs> that was a joke. I'm not serious. <coughs> Except a little bit. Okay, let's keep going. What time is it? Okay, we have, 20, we have 25 minutes, basically. 30 minutes. Oh, what, okay, for a while we were enemies. We were reconciled to God. Okay, we we're at verse 12. Is everybody okay? Yes. All right, y'all doing all right? Okay, good. Therefore, once again, there's a therefore, which I just read to you, you know. So because of all this stuff that I just said, just as the... <laughs> Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was, is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. All right, what in the world did he just say? Okay, he's saying that sin came in through one guy, Adam, and with sin, death. Right? So death reigned between, between Adam and Moses, and then the law came in and amplified death. Because, not because the law was bad, but because sin was bad. Okay? We were all filled with sin even before the law. 
But, okay, so that was what happened because of Adam. So kind of the gift of Adam was death. Congratulations. <laughs> because Adam sinned, now we all have this proclivity for sin. We're, we're, we're all going to be sinners from that point forward. This is what the Bible calls original sin. But I would bring to your attention the reality that original righteousness is more original than original sin. That God's declaration over the human race was, you're like me. Adam came in and screwed that up. Now he had Eve's help. The reality is, there's a lot of people that think that if Adam had not eaten of the tree, that God would have just killed Eve, made him a new wife, and we would have started over. I know. I don't think that's true because I don't think that's how God works. But, you know. But they blame it on Adam. Why? Because Adam was apparently standing right there and did nothing to stop his wife from eating of the tree. And then, when he also ate of the tree, he pointed the finger at her. What a jerk. God's like, why did you eat of the tree? And he's like, she made me do it. That is the least manly thing anyone's ever done. <laughs> you don't get to do that. And guess what? Here's the beautiful thing. It's not beautiful at all. Here's the horrible thing. Men have been blaming women for their problems ever since. All right, are we going to let, shall we do this? Let's talk about toxic masculinity for just a moment. This is the origin of toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity is a thing, and it's a powerful thing, and every single person in this room has been affected by it. That doesn't mean every single person in this room has demonstrated toxic masculinity, men or women. Okay, but it is a thing. And anybody that tries to tell you, stop attacking masculinity, I'm not attacking masculinity, not real masculinity. I'm attacking this fake masculinity that masquerades as quote-unquote manliness, which says that women are our problem and that men get to treat them as less than human. The reality is the call of the man is to be the identity giver for the woman. That is our, that is why we exist. We are identity bringers, gentlemen. That's who we are. We give identity and women, you nurture identity. That's how this works. Now, there's a lot of people that would be very mad at me for what I just said. Because they don't like anybody to say that men and women are different from each other. It's just not true. We are. Men and women are different from each other. Does that mean every man is exactly like every other man? No. But men and women are different from each other. It's reality. Let's just deal with this, folks. It's real. Okay? And if you look at the role of the man, the godly role of men through all of history has been to be the recognizer and affirmer of identity, and the godly rule, which, which is why the fathers always named their children, which is why to this day the children are named with the last name of their father, which is why, okay, come on, which is why a fatherless generation has no idea who they are, because they don't have anybody to recognize and affirm their identity. Which, by the way, gentlemen, this is something I learned after I had already had a couple of kids. 
And the Lord began to speak to me about this, began to show me this reality of manhood in the Bible, that this is what manhood and masculinity really is. That my job is to see you and to affirm you and who you actually are and not try to make you me and not try to tell you you're someone that you're not or that you shouldn't be who you are. My job is to recognize who you are and to empower you to be fully who you are. Does that make sense? All right? The job of a woman is different. The job of a woman is to come in and nurture identity. To come in and to be the one who says, it's going to be okay. Let me give you comfort and strength in this moment. Let me lift you up. Whereas man stands out here and says, come and be who you are. A woman stands, says, whoever you are, I'm with you. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Yeah. I'm with you. You do? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Now understand this. What toxic masculinity does is it takes that power of identity giving and turns it on its head and says, because I'm an identity bringer, I can make you who I want you to be. And I can use you to affirm my identity. I can make myself feel big. I can make myself feel strong by pushing you down. In other words, instead of being a giver of, an, of identity, I am a thief of identity. I rob identity from you. That's what toxic masculinity does. And toxic masculinity usually does it through coercive power. Now, coercive power is you do what I tell you or I hurt you. That's coercive power. And that's usually how toxic masculinity operates. Because I'm bigger and stronger than you, and because I'm more intimidating than you, I can steal your identity from you. Instead of using my strength and power to give you identity, I use strength and power to steal it from you. That's normally how toxic masculinity works. And it's often done in the area of sexuality. And let me say this to you, sexuality is so intertwined with identity, you have no idea which is why people who struggle with homosexual desires immediately begin to refer to themselves as that desire. I am homosexual, I am bisexual, I am whatever. Does this make sense? Because sexuality and identity are connected to one another, which is why you should only have sex with someone who fully realizes and affirms your identity, and that can only happen in marriage where you're saying, I give all that I am to you, and, and, and you're giving all that you are to me. There are very, very good reasons why sex belongs in marriage and only in marriage. Because sex should be a tool for the identity giver and the identity nurturer to give and nurture identity. Not a weapon to be used to steal someone's identity. Are you all with me? I think we might be out of time. No, we're not. Didn't talk as long as I thought I had.
about that. Any questions? Did you have a question? Yeah. Could you elaborate on the part of identity giver? What do you mean by that? Like, what does that look like? Well, okay, this is the <coughs> thing that I learned. This, is, this was my introduction to this idea. I was I was at a prayer uh, thing with a bunch of other pastors, and we were studying what it meant to be spiritual fathers. I was 30 years old. <laughs> so it was like, you know, am I old enough to even be anybody's spiritual father? But I was immediately relating it to my relationship with my children, of course. And also, I was a youth pastor, so I was identity identifying with the kids that were in my youth ministry. It was, okay, so this is what I need to do. I need to father them. I need to be a spiritual father for these young men and women. And I was praying into this, and I, I, I read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on, in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I said, huh. So fatherhood gives name, gives identity, gives, gives someone their name. Think about it. In, the, in Jesus' time, you were known as Josh, son of Ron. It was my relationship as his son that gave me my identity. The reality is my last name, Hawkins, is derived from Hawkins' son. So there was some guy named Hawkins who had a kid that was referred to as Hawkins' son. And then it was eventually, and they just kept doing that down the line until they lost the two, the O-N, and then it was just Hawkins from that point forward. Does that make sense? And so uh, there, there is, there is I, just identity that comes from the father, but the job of the dad is not to impose identity, but to recognize who God has created you to be and to call you into who God has created you to be. So as I was praying about this, I'm like, okay, Lord, so I'm the dad of two kids. At the time, they were like five and seven, okay? Uh, my wife was probably pregnant with our next, if not our fourth. And I was praying about that. And I had been having some difficulty with my two oldest sons. They'd just been doing things they shouldn't have. And the Lord took me back to a moment where I had said to my oldest son, if you steal things, you're a thief. I said that to him. And the Lord said, in that moment, you gave him an incorrect identity. And I was like, well, what do I do then, Lord? And he said, what you should have done was call him to his actual identity. Instead of naming him his crime, you should have reminded him who he was. So it sounds like this. Why are you stealing things? You're not a thief. This isn't who you are. Remember who you are. You're a loving and giving and generous person. You're not a thief. You're the opposite of a thief. Do you see how I'm saying the same thing there, but I'm saying two completely different things there? Because my oldest son is loving and generous. He's one of the most generous people I know. He really is. He has no money, but he's incredibly generous, which is probably why he has no money. And seeing that about him, and then 
affirming that about him. This is who you are, remember? Doesn't steal his identity from him, it gives him identity back. Does that explain it? And so ever since then, that's what I've tried to do. I've tried not to give a false identity to my kids. I've tried to remind them of their actual identity. To bring them back in. Because what does God do? He calls us to reconciliation. Instead of saying, because you did this, I now no longer have relationship with you. It's, it's you stepped out of relationship with me to do this. Now come back to relationship with me. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying I have this entirely figured out because I don't. But this has been kind of my, my, you know, the way I operate ever since. Is to think about my kids as those that it's my job to give them identity. And not just my kids, but people that I'm in leadership over, people that I'm friends with, to name who they are. Have you ever had somebody just speak who you are to you and you're like, I can't, like, you know, and it just, it does something for you because they recognized you? That's what masculinity really is. Masculinity makes, I use my power to make room for you to be who you are. I think of Philippians chapter 2 where it says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though having equality with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant, even being obedient unto death. Why? Jesus took his power and his privilege and he gave it to you. He used it to make way for me and for you. He handed his power off. And that's what Christ-likeness is. Saying, the power I have, I'm going to use on your behalf and not against you. And not in order to gain more power for myself. No, the power I have, I use to enable you. Does this make sense? It's definitely <laughs> thinking back to all those times where this should have been done then, but yeah. wasn't, and what would have happened yeah. had it been done. Think about how many times the power of a man has been used to rob you of uh, your identity, to belittle you, to tell you you shouldn't be who God created you to be, over and over and over again. And here's the thing about toxic masculinity. Men often suffer as much or more from toxic masculinity than women do. I'm not belittling the suffering of women, but most of the time when we start talking about toxic masculinity, we immediately just talk about women. We have to recognize that not only is toxic masculinity wielded against men, but the men who wield it are destroying themselves. Because what is their identity? As a man, 
My identity as a man is to give you identity. And instead, I'm doing everything I can to steal your identity to lift my identity up. Do you see how that's eroding my very sense of self? And how, just like any other drug that you can think of, you have to keep taking more and more of it just to feel good? Think about, now, now let's, let's pull this all the way to the issue of pornography. Okay? Because whenever we talk about masculinity, we need to go there. What does pornography do? It is the absolute essence of me stealing my, your identity from you. Not only am I taking something, sex, which is meant to affirm your identity and my own, and cheapening it so that it's just about feeling good. But, not, but I have taken it to the place where I don't even have to be in the same room as you to steal your identity from you and to use you to make myself feel better. That's the reality of what pornography is. Pornography is a thousand people gang raping a porn star. More than a thousand, a million. That's what they're doing. Even if they don't recognize that's what they're doing, that's what they're doing. That's why Jesus said, when you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. Jesus wasn't kidding around. Jesus said, when you do this, you are stealing that person's identity just as if you had knocked them on the ground and raped them yourself. That's what pornography really is. And that's why it's so disgusting and, dis and disruptive. That's why it can't be a part of a Christian life. Can't be. Because we are a people who are created to give identity back. This is the, this is the reality of this. We, oh, we've got to understand. The other issue is that we don't really understand the, the issue of identity. We don't really get it. Identity comes from relationship. We don't understand that. You aren't who you are by yourself. No one is. You are who you are because of the relationships you're in and the people you're connected to. You are who you are because of where you live and the people that live around you and the people you spend your time with and the people that exist around you. You are who you are because of the community in which you exist. Your identity is a gift to you from the community that surrounds you. The very language that you use is a gift to you from the community that surrounds you. Your ability to say, my name is Josh Hawkins, comes from the community which birthed me. My very life came from my parents practicing real community with one another. Anybody that thinks that they can stand on their own and say, this is who I am and I don't need anybody else, does not understand identity in any way, shape, or form. Identity is a gift. I don't know where. Let's finish this. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay. I think I grasped this right. Like the idea of like women being nurturers. So yeah. is that like the idea of like women helping like grow a child's identity or like grow the person's identity? Instead of standing outside of someone and calling them to their identity, you stand within them. 
and give them the comfort and the foundation they need to grow strong. Is, is that the difference? And I don't have as full a picture of, of, of biblical femininity as I do of masculinity because I've been on a search for biblical masculinity my entire life. I immediately rejected what my culture told me masculinity was because I'm a man and I'm happy to be a man and I'm not that and I won't be. So I need to go and find what the Bible says about who I am. I'll let the Bible change my mind, but I'm not going to let a football commercial change my mind. Does that make sense? So I'm not as good with... need to find a woman who has been, who the Holy Spirit has really spoken to about what femininity really is. Be careful, though, because there's some women who have more toxic masculinity in them than some of the worst men. I wish it wasn't true, but I've seen it. I've seen women stand on a stage in front of women and say things to them that I wanted to throw rocks at them because they were just parroting the patriarchy and the toxic masculinity of our culture and trying to tell women that they weren't allowed to be empowered, that they weren't allowed to be who God created them to be, that they weren't allowed to be all of the things, all the amazing things that God had put into their souls. No, you should let the, your husband's vision crush who God created you to be. I mean, they didn't say those exact words, but close. And I wanted to walk up there and say, woman, get off the stage. I didn't, because that would have been toxic masculinity probably. But... <laughs> but I wanted to because I couldn't stand it I was like are you kidding me alright maybe it's time for me to get a better understanding of, of biblical femininity maybe I need to do some but Eve's name meant the mother of many nations That's, that's, that was her name. And just as women bear children in their bodies, they bear those children for the rest of their lives. Do you know that once a baby has been in a woman's womb, that there are cells from that baby that are moving around inside of her body for the rest of their life? What? Yeah. And check this out. The cells of your kids will fight off disease. They will literally attack cancer cells in the body. Yeah. That literally, my mother still has some of me moving around inside her body right now. And it is renewing her life. Is that incredible or what? It's just unbelievable to me. I'm that my mind is blown. I mean, it really is. Isn't that amazing? I just check it out. You can find it on the internet somewhere. All right, we do not have time to go through the last half of this, so we will save it for next time um, because it's really important and and uh, yeah, it's really we need to talk through it. So let's pray, Heavenly Father. I am so grateful for the way 
that you gave me who I am. And I'm so grateful that your desire for me and for all of the people in this room is that we would become fully what you created us to be. And that the mission of Jesus was to restore us to the relationship with you that gave us the identity that we had. And to enable us to be free from the sin which was stealing our identity. To set us free to be the creations that you have created. Because you looked at us and you said, they're like me. You looked at us and said, it is very good. Father, my prayer for my friends in this room is that today you would reveal things about who they are that has been stolen by the enemy. And that you would enable them through the power of the Holy Spirit to reclaim some of the things that the enemy has stolen today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. I love you all. God bless you. Have an awesome day. Make sure you get to Pastor's Prayer on time.